Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. I'm reading from the New International Version. We're reading from verses 1 to 19. Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, 1 to 19. Remember, we're looking at a series that's looking at Dr. Luke's medical cases or his, his um, surgery. Luke 3, 1 to 19. Here Luke narrates for us, In the 15th year of the reign of Tibus, to Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Utira and Traconicus, and Lusanius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, but out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, we do. Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winning fork is in his hand to clear the, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. May God bless to us now that reading of his holy word. Have my slides up, please. 
HDMI 1. Last Old Testament prophet. Family Fortunes, you've probably seen the series on TV, the uh, quiz show, the wonderful quiz show, where questions are asked and families are asked to volunteer what people may have answered. And I don't know about you, but sometimes people allow their mouths to run off with them and don't really engage brain before speaking. And the following is some examples of what happens when people don't think about the question they are being asked. So to the question, name something a blind man might use, the answer came back, a sword. Probably quite effective to get through the high street, but probably not the best way of working. Name a bird with a long neck. Any ideas? How about Naomi Campbell? <laughs> name an occupation where you might need a torch. A miner. A miner. Good answer, Stuart. We got the bur a burglar. <laughs> Not an occupation I particularly aspire to. What is Hitler's first name? Wrong. Hell. <laughs> name a famous Scotman. Scotsman. How about Jock? <laughs> name some famous brothers. How about Body and Clyde? <laughs> Something that floats in the bath. How about water? Something you wear on a beach. I never tried to wear this on a beach. How about a deck chair? <laughs> Imagine that's not particularly very comfortable beach wear. A famous royal. Any ideas? William, William Harry, can we think of many? How about male? <laughs> Something a cat does. How about goes to the toilet? Something associated with pigs. Forgive me for this, Mike. Okay. The police. Something people might be allergic to. This is scandalous. I love skiing. Something you do before you go to bed. This is obviously a very boring person because their answer was sleep. Something you put on walls. How about a roof? Food that can be brown or white, a potato. So the big question here, the big thing here is this. Think before you speak. Don't just answer, reflect upon it. And this was the role of John the Baptist. He came to make people think, to prepare them for the one who was coming behind. In a literal sense, John the Baptist or John the Dipper was a herald preparing the way for the forthcoming king. You see, in Luke chapter 3, we have one of the great passages of the New Testament and in the Bible. It's a wonderful passage because it's written by a very well-educated man who was a Greek called Luke, and it's actually acknowledged among historians looking at ancient writings that the, the actual Gospel of Luke is one of the best historical documents we have of that period. It's so well written so well researched. And we find this when we come to see, to look at how he begins his narrative. He says this, 
He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Traconitus, and Lysanias, sorry, Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caphias, and the word, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. We have the whole passage, this occurrence, anchored deeply in history. He says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Tiberius Caesar began to reign on the 19th of August when, when Caesar Augustus died. So we draw 15 years on from that, we know exactly that that date will be around about 28 to 29 AD. He then says when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, uh, Pontius Pilate, we know from historical annals, was the prefect of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. Then it says during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, uh, Caiaphas. What's interesting here is there's two high priests. There was only ever one high priest. But what happened was the, uh, the prefect before Pontius Pilate had a disagreement with Annas and he removed Annas from power. Now, Annas was the um, high priest from 6, 6 to 15 AD, but throughout the rest of Annas's life, because the Jews viewed the high priest as a lifelong um, role, he always remained the power behind the throne. So even though there were other high priests, it was really Annas people looked at. So what here Luke is doing is reminding us that during this period, there were two high priests. The high priest of the people, who was Annas, and there was also Caiaphas, who was chosen by the Roman Empire. And Caiaphas happened actually to be Annas's son-in-law. So Annas is always remains behind the, the, the power of the throne of the priesthood. Which is why, in fact, when you find Jesus' Jesus's trial later on in the Gospels, that Jesus was taken before two high priests and not one. The disposed high priest Annas and the, the, the uh, puppet high priest Caiaphas. So we have here a historical anchoring. Luke is saying this isn't just a story. This is from human history. This is a reality. And in fact, we find this confirmed because people like the Jewish historian Josephus also writes about John the Baptist. He writes this in the Antiquities to the Jews. He says, John that was called the Baptist, who was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue both as the righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. Luke is saying, this is history. This is the beginning when the world begins to change. This is critical to you and to me and to the history of this planet. This is important stuff, and it is historical stuff, and this is the date when it began, when the herald called John the Baptist or John the Dipper began to do the work in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. It's history. But it's not only history, he's also telling us it's dark times. Dark times. Because we know when we read about Caesar, um, Tiberius Caesar, he wasn't a good emperor. He was a brutal emperor, and the time of his reign was very, very brutal. And he, he actually, for many t years, went back and he actually took a rest for around about 20 years and left the country being led by one of the, the chief of the Praetorian Guard in Rome. And he was a very, very brutal man. It was a dark period in history. And in 19 AD, all the Jews were ordered to leave Rome. 
Many of the young men were conscripted into the Roman army and they were told if they remained in Rome, they would be enslaved for the rest of their lives. And so they were thrown out of the capital. And Palestine wasn't much better because Palestine had been handed over to the sons of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, of course, was a brutal man. He was the one responsible for the massacre of the innocents. 70 or 72 young children were killed in trying to, put, trying to find the Messiah and to kill the Messiah. And when Herod the Great, finally, before he died, he divided his kingdom up into three and left his three sons to rule it. And each one was like their father, not a good person. It was a dark and evil period. They were self-serving. They were immoral. They were brutal. It was dark times. And John is saying, a light is coming. Into this darkness, a light is coming. Luke writes in Luke 16, verse 16, these words. He says, The law of the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. John is a watershed. He is bringing a change. He is the last Old Testament prophet, and he's bringing in and heralding in a change, not just for Palestine, but for the whole world. Good news is on the way. But you and I need to be in the right frame of mind to receive it. And the first thing that John the Baptist says is this, prepare to turn. Prepare to turn. If this was a ship, and I was going to announce that this ship is about to sink, I can guarantee you something would happen very quickly. It's called panic. And panic is spread. The actual word panic is a Greek word. It's, it's, it came from shepherding, in fact. When, they, when a shepherd would have sheep, sheep are very skittish animals. And when sh- sheep began to jump about, suddenly scared by something, it was described that they had been disturbed by the god Pan. They'd been panicked by Pan, because Pan was a mischievous um, uh, Greek god. He'd, he'd, he'd scared them. And that expression is quite true, because... When panic hits, people begin to scream and run around and run into each other. And in that kind of picture of chaos, it's very hard to hear the instructions. I want to talk briefly about this man here, Frederick Fleet. Frederick Fleet was the, on the Titanic and was a British sailor just 25 years old when he signed to become a crewman on Titanic. He was one of the five lookouts on that ill-fated maiden journey, maiden voyage. And he was the one that made the famous call to the bridge, Iceberg Right Ahead. It was 10 p.m. on April the 14th. And he was in the frigid crow's nest with his watch partner named Reginald Lee. And the departing team warned them to look out for bits of ice that floated in the sea. But tragically, none of them had been issued with binoculars because they were too expensive. Had they been issued with binoculars, perhaps the sinking of the Titanic would never have happened. It's very hard to see ice in the sea on a moonlit night. And at 11.39 p.m., just 20 minutes before the end of his shift, he spotted an iceberg. He rung the alarm, called it through to the bridge, but it was too late, and the ship hit the iceberg. But the good thing about Frederick Fleet was this. He listened to the clear instructions of the captain. He finished his... his um, his, his shift off, he went to one of the lifeboats and he was lowered with one of the lifeboats and he took it to the Carpathia which took the people back to the UK in safety. His was one of the few lifeboats that made it off that particular ship because 
He remained calm and listened to the instructions of the captain. Amid all the panic going on in the Titanic, some people got off because they remained calm. And we need to listen to the instructions if we're to receive the good news that Jesus wants to bring. See, we're told in this passage in verse 3 that John the Baptist went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this was a very radical and unpleasant message for the Jewish people of the day. In fact, it was quite insulting because a Jewish person didn't need to be baptized. Why? Because they were the sons of righteousness. They were the children of Abraham. They had been, the males had been circumcised. That marked them out in their body as children of Abraham. They didn't need to be baptized. The only people that were baptized in the Jewish religion were the Gentiles. And there were proselyte baptisms, which were baptisms given to someone who wanted to convert from being a Gentile to becoming a Jew. And they were baptized because they were dirty Gentiles, the great unwashed. A Jew didn't need to be baptized because they were sons of Abraham and daughters of Abraham. They lived by the law. They were naturally pure people. But of course, that's not true. The problem with the law is it can tell you how to be good, but because we have fickle, immoral human hearts, we can't be perfect. If I was to ask you here today, any of you in this church, were perfect. Perhaps some of, some of you would be brave enough if your husband and wife wasn't here to put your hand up. But none of us are perfect, are we? None of us are good because we're hampered by our hearts, by immorality deep inside us. And that's what Paul talks about. He talks about the struggle to be good because it's, it's impossible to be good with the human nature. And the Jewish people believed because they were sons and daughters of Abraham that their DNA was naturally pure and they didn't need to be baptized. Only Gentiles like you and me who aren't non-Jewish people needed to be baptized. So John's message was fundamentally insulting to the Jewish people. And so we're told in Matthew's Gospel that some Pharisees and Sadducees came out but when they saw the many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is John, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come in to where he was baptized, and he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? They were like snakes fleeing a bush fire, coming to quiz him, coming to question why he was baptizing Jewish people. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And repentance literally means a turn around. It means stop going in the direction you're going and start going in another direction. Literally stop walking away from God and start walking towards God. To, and to receive the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it must start with humility. It must start with saying, I am wrong. I can't do it by myself. I'm not perfect. It was insulting to the Jewish people to be offered baptism. And it may be insulting to you to think, but you're not a good person. But trust me, I've been on this planet 58 years. I can't achieve perfection. I'm an ordained minister. I've got a dog collar. I haven't got a halo. Anyone can buy a piece of plastic to put around your neck and make you a vicar or a minister. I've never been able to find a shop that sells a halo. And I've never been able to wear it because I'm not good enough. It starts with humility. It starts realizing that all of us needs to turn around, to start walking back towards God, towards God. 
But people complain and say, well, I don't need to repent. Why do I need to repent? I believe in God. That's a good start, believing in God. A really good start. But you've got a problem. Because the devil believes in God. And all the demons believe in God. But hey, here's news. They're not Christians. James tells us this in James 2 verse 19. You believe that as one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In the RAF, people often say to me, Padre, I believe in God, and that's a good start. But it's only a start. And it's not good enough for salvation. Because you may believe, as you stand in the road, that a juggernaut is coming down the road in your direction. You may believe that, but unless you get out of the way of that juggernaut, you're still going to be run down. Belief without action is useless. We need to turn around and start walking back to God. And some of the people that were coming out to see John, they said, we're Abraham, we have Abraham as our father. And of course, John had to remind them that God could raise up sons of Abraham from the very stones around on the, on the, on the, on the, uh, uh, the river floor of the Jordan. And we live in a country where people appeal to DNA. They say, but my parents were Christian, I'm a Christian. Well, just because your parents have faith doesn't mean you necessarily have faith. Just because your parents went to church doesn't mean that you are a Christian. And some people, of course, say, I was baptized as a baby. It doesn't matter whether you were baptized as a baby. The question is now whether you're still following Jesus Christ. Now, I would question as a Baptist whether a child can ever repent and be baptized at the age of nine months. Whether they can understand what baptism means, understand what repentance means, what faith means. I knew at nine months I couldn't. It'd be wonderful if I could. That's why we have believers' baptism, when people are of an age to understand what it means to go through the waters of, of, of baptism. And other people say to me, well, I'm a Christian because I'm British. I was born a Christian. Well, that's wonderful. Just because you're born in Britain doesn't make you a Christian. If you're born in McDonald's, would that make you a hamburger? Just you're born in a place, suddenly, miraculously, you become that thing. I don't believe this is a Christian country anymore. Perhaps it may have been in, in the past. But faith actually is, and we as Brits believe this, a personal thing. It's something of a personal commitment. You and I have to make that decision. That's why John was preaching to people. He said, repent and be baptized. You make a decision, not for your family, but for yourself. And they make a family, and they make a decision for themselves. You are responsible for you. And John makes it very clear that to receive God's message, we need to do something. See, salvation is not about the nation of our birth. It's not about your spiritual DNA, about your parents, or even your attendance at church. It always involves turning. It begins with repentance. It begins with preparing to follow God. And so God, so John's message has at the heart of it the preaching of the prophet Isaiah, in particular Isaiah chapter 40 where it's written, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the way in the desert. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places made plain, and the glory of God will be revealed. 
If you want the glory of God to be revealed in your life, you've got to make the way straight for God to come in, to level the to hills, to fill in the valleys and make it clear. You know, the problem is Christians and people who have repented, we need to con- continually repent of the wrongs in our lives and make sure that the rubbish doesn't begin to clutter up our lives and stop the Holy Spirit and God himself coming and, and ministering to us. You need to take away the rubbish. You need to turn. And this requires humility and remembering that we're not righteous, but we know someone who is. And maybe here people here today who've made a decision to follow the Lord Jesus, who have repented but have never been baptized. People, baptism isn't an optional extra for Christians. It's not something we do if we want to. Only the committed, really committed Christians are baptized. Baptism is a command of God. It's something we do out of obedience. The Bible doesn't say, if you like, repent and be baptized. Jesus commanded his disciples in Matthew 28, these words. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And Peter says in Acts, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance and baptism is a command for us. It's something we have to do. The pool's open today. We've got a baptism taking place. Later on, we've opened door that I'll be taking part in. And I'll be the third person who's been baptized in that baptistry this year. We've got baptism planned for the Sunday morning service in October for one of our members, a young man who came to know the Lord recently. Possibly there may even be two baptisms on that Sunday. If you haven't been baptized, and you are a Christian, ask yourself, should you be baptized? Is God saying to you today that in out of obedience you need to go through those waters because it is obedience that leads us through the waters of baptism. It's not an optional extra. It's a requirement for those who believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. John said, prepare to turn. He said, prepare to take on. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The act has been laid at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John's saying, don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk. How many times have you heard people talk about Christians as being hypocrites because they don't live a Christian life? And Christianity is not just about turning back to God and walking towards God. It's displaying the fruit of walking towards God. Displaying the fruit of being like God and being changed day by day by the Holy Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit should begin to be seen in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We need to be displaying the fruits of repentance. It shows that we actually walk in in the right direction. And this is about not just the absence of things, but about the presence of things. It does involve the absence of bad things. And we find that the tax collectors came to John and asked what he, they should do. And he told them not to extort money. And the soldiers came to him and said, what should we do? And he told them not to extort money and, and, and to be content with their pay. 
Christians should reflect an absence of the bad, but they should also show the presence of the good, the presence of God's Spirit upon their lives. John says as much. He said that they need to have generous spirits. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. John was saying one of the fruits of repentance is a generous spirit, someone who's naturally giving to others, naturally sharing to others. Repentance should be seen not merely in a declaration of the mouth, but in the fruit of a life. When people see your life, do they see someone? They know that you are a Christian because they see the fruit of the Spirit of God. Do they see Christ in you? Christ upon you? Because then John begins to use the image of the gardener. And those of you who will begin this, this, this autumn time to cut back the bushes will be cutting off the dead branches. Why? Because the dead branches suckle and take all the moisture out of the bush or the tree that prevent the, the fruit-bearing branches from bearing fruit. So we naturally cut off the dead wood, the wood that doesn't produce the fruit, and it's thrown into the fire. And John is saying, if we aren't bearing fruit... The, careful, the, the danger is, is that if we're not a fruit-bearing Christian, then the question is, are we a real Christian? If you can't see the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, do we have the Spirit in us? The Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. We need to make sure that our lives are fruitful and blessing others. But then he begins to talk about that the baptism he had was a foretaste of an even greater baptism. Lastly, he talks about being prepared to transform. He says this, I will baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John says here that he is just the messenger. The good news is to follow. But he's providing a visual demonstration of a greater baptism. And of course, he's talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, the good news of God. And he's saying that Jesus is far greater than him. In fact, so great, but he couldn't untie his straps. Now that kind of imagery is lost on us, but if you were a disciple in the first century and you followed a rabbi, you, the rabbi was paid by you doing services in kind for him. And a, and a disciple would do anything for a rabbi. He would cook him food, he would clean his house, he would look after him, he would do anything. But the one thing a disciple was never expected to do of, its, of his rabbi was to wash the rabbi's feet. That was seen as a too menial task. And so the rabbis used to say this. Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except loosening of his sandal from. And what, Jesus, what John is saying here is that he's not worthy, even as a disciple of Jesus Christ, because the man who follows him is so great, so big, that he's not worthy even to wash his feet. That's the humility of John the Baptist. This man is so great. Why? Because he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In the medieval period, when surgeons did work on a body, on a, on a human, sorry, when they're doing surgery, on a, they always used to um, cauterize the metal implements in fire. Not just using water, because water is limited. Water, we've got water there, and when you have a bath, it's very limited in its cleansing properties. We have to 
augment the power of water, don't we, by using soap and detergents to wash away the bacteria. And of course, in, this day and, uh, in that day and age, they didn't have um, uh, Unilever and all the kind of uh, various products of detergents that they produce. One of the best ways of cleansing in the ancient world was fire. I don't suggest you use fire to cleanse your body when you have a bath. It's not very pleasing, although sometimes if um, Fiona, Fiona does a bath, it's like going into fire because she likes the water so hot. I like it a bit more milder. But the reality is, is that fire is a cleansing agent. And John the Baptist says that the baptism that Jesus will give is a different baptism because it's a baptism of fire. And fire cleanses not only the outside but the inside. John's baptism was an external baptism of repentance. The baptism that Jesus brings us is a renewal of us, deep inside. Not just the external, but the inner part of us. It's a baptism of fire. Because we need new insides. We need a new, a, 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 a new heart and a new blessing. See, the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to transform us and to make each one of us into a missionary that we might leave this place and go out and carry the good news into the world in which we live. Sometimes some of the modern churches get confused with the Holy Spirit and see the Holy Spirit only as a bless-me-up club. Receive the Holy Spirit and get a blessing. Well, God does want to bless us by the Holy Spirit, but he blesses us to bless others. He changes us so we bring his good news into the world. It's not just about me. The Holy Spirit's not a recreation. It's not there as an entertainment to make us feel good. Being filled with the Holy Spirit can make you feel good, but not only make you feel good. Let me tell you as we close this service about an incident that happened to me when I was a very young man. And I was serving in Germany in the Royal Air Force. And I was, I was a member of my Baptist church back in Kent, Days Lane Baptist Church. And being out there in Germany, I used to like to be able to write to someone. And so I like to have a Christian girlfriend. And so I'll go back on leave and I'll form a relationship with a girl in, in my youth group. And we would commit to writing to each other. And I'll get out back into Germany. And after a few weeks or a couple of months, I'll begin to question whether this was the right girl for me. And so my letters began to draw up until eventually I, I felt I had to write them to end the relationship. And then I'll go back in a couple of months, back on leave again, and I'll find another member of the young, another young woman from the youth fellowship, and I would begin to be attracted to her and she to me, and we'd make promises to write to each other. I'd go back to Germany, and after a few months being out in Germany, again I would begin to get bored with this letter writing stuff, and, and I'd be eventually write to her and say I no longer write to her. And when I go back on leave again a few months later, find someone else in the youth fellowship. And this went on for a year or so, and eventually I'd managed to go through quite a few of the girls in the youth fellowship. To such a degree, to such a degree, that when I went back on leave one summer in 1981, I discovered that I was persona non grata. <laughs> my name had been officially blacklisted by my exes in the youth fellowship. They got together and they said that Cole Maynard was not a person, he, he was not boyfriend material. And uh, so I came back and discovered not only did none of the girls want to go out with me or write to me, they didn't even want to speak to me. Um, and I was quite shocked by this. I was a young man. I was 20, 21 years old. In fact, I was, I was 20 years old. I was a young Christian. I was a bit insecure. I liked the idea of having someone who wanted to care for me and wanted to write to me. And I was originally quite outraged, and then I was quite upset. And God began to work in that leave. And over that leave period, 
I began to realize I'd actually hadn't been very Christian in my behavior in the, in the youth fellowship. Not, not because I was wanting to hurt people, but because I was a typical boy, a young man, who didn't really, wasn't very emotionally mature. And then the last Sunday, before I had to go back to Germany, I was sitting in a youth meeting, and the youth leader began to ask anyone wanted to come out and give a testimony. And as I was sitting there, it, it was quite remarkable. I really felt the Holy Spirit came upon me. And he said to me, Cole, I want you to go in front of young people and apologize and say you're sorry for the hurt you caused the girls in the congregation. And I said, Father, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit said, Cole, I want you to get up and go up and testify and say sorry to the hurt you caused to people in the congregation. And I said, Father, it's still not happening. This conversation went on, and various people got up and spoke about testimony in their life. And I think, I don't know how long it was, it must have been about 20 minutes, I sat there. And I've never, uh, I mean, I've had it a couple of times, it's one of these very rare occasions where I really heard the Holy Spirit speak to me. And he carried on saying, Cole, get up there and say you're sorry. And when I refused, the Holy Spirit said to me, right, says, you're now going to shake, and you're not going to stop shaking until you get up and go and say you're sorry. And something incredible happened to me because my hands started to shake, and my arms, and my body, and my legs began to shake. And it was a very, very unpleasant experience. I was shaking all over. And eventually, I had to admit defeat, and I had to shakily get on my feet and get up and stand next to the microphone and say sorry to those young women in that congregation. It was really, really unpleasant. But God was saying, you have got to apologize. You have got to repent of that offending behavior. And I did. And I told, I remember the last words very, very clearly. I said, I'm going to have to leave the meeting now before I shake myself to pieces. And I went out. And I remember going through the doors to the church and going out into the garden. And suddenly, the shaking began to dissipate. And it stopped completely. Now that was something that happened to me when I was 20 years old. It wasn't pleasant, but God was cleansing me by the Holy Spirit of a darkness inside me that was incompatible for a young man that God was calling into ministry. God transforms us. He baptizes us not, not on the outside, he baptizes us on the inside. And that baptism of cleansing has carried on into my current year, will probably will definitely carry on to the day that I'm carried to glory. Because I'm a fallen person and I need the Holy Spirit not just on the outside but on the inside, transforming me and making me into someone better. I need that. And you need that. And that was the message of Don the Baptist. A message to turn a message not only to turn but to take on take on new things take on fruits of the spirit a message where he causes us not just to turn and take on but also to be transformed you cannot transform yourself God is the one who transforms us so as we come now to this end and we come to look to go next door and have a coffee think about that are you turning are you taking on the spirit of God in your life are you being transformed by him? Because that's the way we transform this, this town in which we live. Not in your strength or my strength. <laughs> we haven't got it. In his strength. By being filled with his spirit. Empowered and transformed. To bring the good news of Jesus Christ. To Colchester. To Essex. And to this country.
Amen.